0: Thanks for checking out the Best of Podcast. Craig Hoffman here, and I appreciate you clicking this podcast. We'd love if you clicked one more time. Maybe you already have. Maybe that's how you know this podcast exists is because you have already subscribed to it. Uh, We do this every week. Uh, Next week, it will be a true best of, uh, in that there will be multiple shows on Saturday and Sunday next week on The Fan. So make sure that you have that subscribe button clicked so you don't miss the best of that. On the show today, lots of NBA draft talk. I die into the Celtic Sixers trade, why I don't think that Boston's done yet or that something in this trade is not adding up. I'll give you a minute each scouting report on the top five prospects in the draft. That'll be the last thing. In the middle of... Those couple of interviews: J.P. Finley talking about barbecue and football, and Gary Parrish talking about the Louisville punishment that came down this week, as well as the NBA draft. It's all on the Best of Podcast, and it starts right now.
1: And what would it be like for you to play here? I mean, like you said, a couple hours away. Mm-hmm. You come to Philly a lot. What would it be like to be a Sixer? Uh, I think it'd be pretty cool, just being with the young team. Uh, I think the, the up upside of it would be crazy. Um, and um, like I said, I'm close to home, so a lot of my friends could come out and just show love this city has great fans so uh, i think it'll be true
0: that is washington dc product to Matha high graduate and projected number one pick in the nba draft markel fultz talking in philadelphia after a workout yesterday after that workout the sixers pulled the trigger on a trade as did the celtics or with the celtics so that they, the Sixers, could acquire Fultz with that number one pick on Thursday night. Here's the deal with this trade. The Celtics are a team that is flawed offensively. They beat the Wizards in seven games because they had a bunch of guys hit some shots late in game seven, right? It's the quarter that we'll never be able to get out of our head. It was this, not the Zeller quarter, uh, the, the Kelly Olenek quarter. Ugh, that's how the that's how the Celtics got out of the got out of the second round, and and the Wizards did not. Kelly Olynyk had a quarter. Avery Bradley was great. Um, they had some other guys hit some shots, but in terms of offensive creativity, it is Isaiah Thomas or bust. And and as they look at their matchup with Cleveland, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to build your roster that way because. Isaiah Thomas can't play against Cleveland. The Cavs run him off the floor. It is not Dink that the Celtics got better. And I think Isaiah Thomas is a phenomenal player. And against most teams, he's, he's more than worth having on the floor. Cleveland has a special way of just finding him defensively and playing him literally off the floor. Because they score every possession. And Cleveland's great offensively. Don't let, don't let what happened to them in the finals fool you. They are a championship-level team. It's just that the Warriors are like a grade-A historical-level championship team. And so if you're Boston, you're looking at, at this a couple of ways. One, how long until LeBron's done killing everybody in the East? And two... How can we improve our chances to beat him in the meantime while still staying ahead of Washington and uh, the other teams? Toronto, we'll see what happens with Kyle Lowry this summer if they're still around next year. But some of these other teams in the East, Milwaukee seems like they're on the come up. And you would think it would be by adding offensive versatility. Markel Fultz would be just that. Fultz, as a prospect, is one, he can play on or off the ball. So you can play him with Isaiah. You can play him with Avery Bradley. You can play him with Marcus Smart. He's also huge. He's 6'5 with a 6'10 wingspan. So if you play him with Isaiah Thomas, you're not worried about Fultz being undersized and, and to, to guard twos, maybe even some threes. Like You'd be fine with Markel Fultz on Otto Porter. You'd be fine with him on DeMar DeRozan. Obviously, as a defender, he's going to have to grow most. Look, you're going to hear a lot this week. Oh, he's defensive. Basically, about everybody but De'Aaron Fox, and even he at times is is a little lack defensively. It's because these kids are 18 and 19 years old and 20 years old for a couple of them, and the focus factor is not exactly there. When you get older and you learn how to defend in the NBA, you learn an NBA scheme defensively, Nobody comes into the the NBA ready to defend. Outside of the rare prospect, you know, you get one or two a year. So, but long term, you're all right with Fultz guarding one, two, maybe even three. And he's not going to die on a switch to most fours in the league now. Because he's got that 6'10 wingspan. And he's strong. And he's going to get stronger. He's a baby face, but a man's body. And so, with a player that versatile, who can score at all three levels, has a very high playmaking ability. couple passes that are wow-type passes uh, in, his, in his resume tape. And he might even grow more. He's still 19. He's got huge hands and huge feet. He's 6'5". And he might grow more. Like if Markel Fultz in two years is 6'6 and a half, it won't surprise me. And the Celtics are passing on that for Josh Jackson. Jackson's got a lot of hype and he's got a lot lot of raw skill. Here's what I saw when I watched Jackson. Super quick twitch athlete. They can do a little bit of everything. Plays really hard. And it reminds me a lot of Jalen Brown. Well, the Celtics already have Jalen Brown. And there's some point where you go, all right, having two guys that are like that is, makes sense in the modern NBA. The Warriors just won the title and have become one of the best teams we've ever seen due to the fact that they have the ability to switch every... They have a bunch of interchangeable parts, right? Right? They have guys who can do everything on both sides of the ball. And they typically can play like three or four of them at a time, right? Klay Thompson can do everything. Not, maybe not the best off-the-dribble playmaker, but like Kevin Love was having trouble posting him up defensively. He was also guarding Kyrie Irving. And he can play in the pick-and-roll, and he's one of the best shooters that's ever walked on planet Earth. Kevin Durant is all of those things as well. Plus, he's a rim protector. Uh, and an even better offensive player, better ball handler. Um, That's why he's the second best player in the world behind LeBron. Draymond Green doesn't necessarily do anything. I don't want to say doesn't do anything great. He's great defensively. Super smart, does everything offensively, does everything well. Uh, Steph Curry is a, a plus defender, believe it or not. Uh, and obviously offensively is a force like few players we've ever seen in the history of the league because of his range shooting and his ability to hit bad, quote-unquote bad shots. They have all of these guys. Andre Iguodala, Sean Livingston, the list goes on. And so if you think that Josh Jackson is another one of those guys, like you think Jalen Brown, the number three pick in last year's draft the Celtics took, is one of those guys— and that Avery Bradley on your roster is one of those guys, even though these might be the poor men's version. I don't know about Brown. I think Brown could be a stud. But a poor men's version of of what Golden State has, then I would get adding Josh Jackson. But how many defensive players are you going to get? You have Bradley. You have Smart. And it's like what makes Golden State work is that These are two-way players that are hyper-elite on one end of the floor. Like, Durant plays both ways, and his defense is really, really excellent. But he's one of the best offensive players in the league. Draymond's the inverse. His offense is really, really good. His defense is as good as anybody. And if I'm looking at Boston's roster... They don't have the as good as anybody on offense outside of Isaiah. So if you have the spoil of riches, of assets, of draft picks, of ability to add, why would you go for another defensive guy? If you think Avery Bradley, or we know Avery Bradley's that guy, Marcus Smart's that guy, Jalen Brown... Is probably that guy. I don't think Jalen Brown's gonna be a hyper elite offensive player, although he's got a chance to be really good on that end of the floor. Josh Jackson's never gonna be a hyper elite offensive player. He's got some he's got some building blocks for his shot, but he's not a good shooter. His handles comes and goes. He's gonna be an offensive rebound energy guy. Like there's a chance he's a smaller Tristan Thompson rebounds it well, plays really hard, competes his ass off. Defends multiple positions. Not a super threat offensively. Which is why I think there's another move to come for the Celtics. That either this is a giant smoke screen that no and the Josh Jackson stuff is all fake and they're taking Jason Tatum at 3 who is everything that they need. Like, if, if, they, if Adam Silver gets up there on Thursday night and goes with the third overall pick in the 2017 NBA draft, the Boston Celtics select Jason Tatum, the, what's going to happen is shock. Oh, my God. Everyone thought they were taking Jackson. What should happen is, duh. Because Tatum is can come in and score right away. He is got some joe johnson to his game some grant hill to his game like that dude can score yesterday in the nba and maybe they're they know they're gonna get gordon hayward and it's just stacking up on wings uh to play in that multiple switch versatile type thing and hayward's gonna be their offensive guy maybe they think that they can get jimmy butler or paul george i don't know but if if Boston went through all of this and comes out of it with Josh Jackson and then whoever they get in either the 2018 or 2019 draft with the picks, then I'd be surprised if that leads them to where they want to go. Because that roster doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. I get why Josh Jackson is appealing. I think he can play for Brad Stevens. I think Stevens will get a lot out of him. But is he going to take you to the next level? If you're Boston, with the way your roster's currently constructed, no. He's not the skill set that they need. So, keep, keep your ears to the ground for something else to happen. And keep your eye on Danny Ainge, because he's, he's not a dummy. That is for sure. So, last week I was on the Twitter and saw an interesting article past my timeline a couple of times. From the LA Times... Why you should be grilling with mayonnaise. I read it. I thought it was interesting. I tried it. It was quite good. Uh, I reposted about it. And amongst the people replying and wanting to try it for themselves was J.P. Finley of CSN Mid-Atlantic. And J.P. joins me now, Hoffman Show, here on The Fan, uh, to discuss that and maybe some football, too. Uh, J.P., happy Father's Day, my friend. How are you? Hey, I'm doing well. Thanks a lot, Craig. Uh, so you you tried this last night, and you tried this in a way that I did not get a chance to yet. Uh, I tried this on fish and chicken this week. You have t- taken the deep dive into red meat, into steak specifically. You tried the mayo on the grill thing, and I'll explain the science, perhaps in a second, at least a short version of it. First, just the results. What'd you think?
2: It was fantastic, man. I was uh, I was I was a little hesitant, but. Um is a pretty divisive condiment. I don't know if you're aware of that. Oh, yeah. Pretty serious pretty serious debates. But I like Mayo and I usually I use like a spray on my grill that's supposed to be the nonstick. And, you know, it works okay. But my grill's pretty old and I keep it pretty clean, but like I get flare ups, I get all sorts of stuff. So I read that the article you tweeted out and dude it was like Very legitimate chefs advocating this. You know, it was guys that run five-star restaurants. So I was like, all right, I'm going to try it. And it was great. And my wife does not like mayo, but I did her steak with the mayo also, and she was totally fine. There's no mayonnaise taste. It's just, there's got to be a better word for it, but I think it's just like a great lubricant.
0: Yes, no, that they're both. Yes, that is correct. And yes, there has to be a better word for that. <laughs> um, basically, the, the idea is mayonnaise is oil and egg. and so neither of those things are going gonna really stick the egg. winds up providing like kind of a coat, I guess, and it kind of locks in the flavor and the tenderness and the oil. And also it, it affects the burning temperature for the oil and the, and the fat. Uh, in the mayonnaise, and that allows it to not stick. And my grill is the same, man. It's old. It doesn't work. Uh, it, I get flare-ups in terms of it doesn't work well. It, it has flare-ups. It Things stick all the time. It has zero nonstick left if it ever had any to begin with. Right, um right. And well, and I, no, I was no, able to cook salmon on the thing.
2: Right yeah you know and, and whatever they make non-stick out of is not a is not something humans should be eating anyway right you no know? like it's a chemical that you're adding to stuff so it's not like that's organic by any means
0: so what like what is your your favorite thing to grill that you are now excited to try the mayo like i'm also curious like a ribs or something like that that's got a sauce on it how do how do we approach that
2: yeah, so I, I, you know, I wasn't shy about it. I grilled good ribeyes last night, and that's about my favorite steak in the world. So I, I kind of swung, I swung for a home run at first, and it went well. And what I say, so I didn't have sauce on there. Uh-huh. I, I have with my ribeyes. I like this, uh, this like Cajun dry rub. Yeah, it's, it's a steak. I think it, doesn't it actually need sauce flavor if it's flavor right. right, I think it held that flavor in better than. You know, when I try the oil and whatever else, or butter or, or anything, um, I, I grill a lot of like London broil and then just like chicken breasts. So that'll probably be the next steps.
0: Yeah, no, and that that was the thing, too. Like, I when I grill chicken, I do it for the entire week. By the way, we're talking to J.P. Finley on the Hoffman Show on The Fan. Yes, this is a sports station, but it's summer, and we're talking about grilling meat, because why not? Um, it's Father's Day, dude. Yeah. We're, we're totally supposed to be talking yeah, about grilling meat. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we're, we're just helping all the dads out there get ready for U.S. Open Sunday uh, with the proper proper barbecue, uh Etiquette, our new proper barbecue etiquette. Um, like I, ma- I grilled chicken for the week, and when I was reheating the chicken, literally, it's most of the time it's really dry, and it's just like, man, this would have been so good if I just ate it all at once when it was hot and fresh. It held the moisture even when reheating. Like that was that's an enormous game changer to me.
2: Yeah, that's huge. Uh, I'll try that tomorrow because we do the same thing. I, I usually will grill. Whole bunch of chicken for my wife and I for the week. The the person you got to talk to, man, is Kim. Kime is kind of the yes. the grill master of the Redskins media room, and I mean he he grills pizza. He's got all these crazy what? recipes. So if you, if you can convert him, man, then then you've you've conquered the DMV, as far as I know.
0: All right, I'll t- I'll have to to get on the horn with cakes uh, sometime soon and and figure that out. All right, I got like three minutes left with you. Let's talk a little bit of Redskins. Um, I don't know if you heard uh, what Eric Schaefer had to say on our station. Obviously, you guys got a chance to talk to them a little bit, uh, or him a little bit this week too. As all of the front office changeover happened, um, he said he told Grant and Danny that he they think that they've made some kind of offer to Kirk Cousins that is financially fair, and they've they've shown him love basically uh, in a way that that would include compensation. What do you know about that, and, and what do you think at this point it would take? For Kirk to sign um, beyond just making the Redskins sweat and getting to the deadline, and, the, and then seeing a, a deal that he likes on paper.
2: Well, as far as what it at least has to be, you got to get to at least call it fifty-five million. Just add up the twenty-four guaranteed uh, in guaranteed money. Sorry, uh, mm, yeah, twenty-four yeah. guaranteed this year, at least twenty-eight guaranteed next year, assuming they were go with transition tag, and you probably need to go higher than that. The one thing that I've heard from some people, and I believe Grant reported a three-year deal. I, I don't know that either side is looking for the five-year, $120 million deal. I think the Skins are probably rather locked in long-term, but if you're Kirk, maybe you want some flexibility. Um, I, it's so hard to know. because there's, there's truly not much incentive for Kirk to sign a long-term deal just because of the guaranteed nature of, of these franchise tags that he's been playing on. I mean, he's going to make $24 million this year. So there's, there's not that pressure of, oh, man, if I get hurt, or, oh, man, if I have a bad year. Like he, it's locked in. He's making that no matter what. So right. the other thing I found pretty interesting, I don't know if you saw this or what, but Doug Williams was on NFL Network. Mm -hmm. Um, with Steve Weiss, I believe. And I think, I'm not saying this as fact, but it's the first time I can remember Doug talked about we really want Kirk back, we want him to look at the big picture. But then he said something along the lines of, if we get to 2018 and he's not back, we've got Colt and we'll have to find another quarterback. And to me, that was the first admission by, you know, a high-ranking Redskins official that, hey, Kirk could be gone. It, it, most of these guys. I mean, every time Bruce Allen's talked about it, he says team option for 2018. You don't hear that other possibility. But I, I found that kind of interesting as well.
0: Yeah, I think Bruce is really good at the political nonsense where he, he's saying stuff, even though it's not true. Like you're not paying totally. him 34 million next year. That'd just be dumb. I don't care. Like I'm how telling, good. i man,
2: don't, don't. I, I I think the 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 thought process to just dismiss that is wrong. I I think. I think we're already at a point where nobody thought we'd get to with a second straight franchise tag. Yeah. I am not dismissing the, the possibility of a third.
0: I'm, I'm dismissing it as a good idea. Not that it could happen, <laughs> yeah, that it would be a good fair. idea. <laughs> All right, I know you've got to run here in a second, but real quick, um, I, I've spent the last segment uh, talking about Tom Sula and, and things that I've heard about him that I am I, frankly quite impressed with. What is just your impression of how this defense is talking now versus this time last year?
2: biggest thing, and this isn't specific to the D-line, even though Tom Sewell's been funny and great to listen to, um, the biggest thing with the defensive line is is players at different positions are talking about they're learning why they're doing stuff. They're not just kind of learning what they're supposed to do. So I think think there's more teaching going on. I think particularly in the secondary, Torian Gray has already made a big difference from Perry Fuel. I I think some of those guys did not get along great with Perry. And I think – I think DJ Swearinger is going to make a big difference in the middle of that secondary. He's the the talking just in OTAs and minicamp. Those guys are it's so much more vocal back there, and I think that will help them a lot.
0: JP, enjoy Father's Day, man, and all of the grilled meats that your heart desires. Thanks, brother. Take care. You too. That's JP Finley, CSN Mid Atlantic, with me here on the fan. You can follow him at JP Finley, CSN Finley, spelled F-I-N-L-A-Y. There's no D in Finley. The way JP spells it, there is a J and in JP though, just, just for the record. Uh, coming up next, a political tweet this week set me off, and no, I'm not talking about politics, It set me off about sports. What? I'll explain next on the fan. No go. <laughs> Show on the fan. The political tweet that sent me off about sports earlier this week, and I promise it literally is nothing political. I think if people have listened to the show, they know which way I lean politically and the person who sent the tweet was the person who leans the same way I do. It just made me mad. Uh, Real quick, though, the list is out. This is not a surprise, um, but the official list is out in terms of who is protected uh, for the Expansion draft in the NHL, um, and the, uh, the list was reported yesterday by Isabel Krishudy in the Washington Post. Ovechkin, Batrum, Kuznetsov, Johansson, Burakovsky, Eller, Wilson, uh, Niskanen, Carlson, Orloff, and Braden Holpe are all, off, like the Vegas team can't pick them. And a lot of people, uh, including Isabel, think that the player that will be picked off the unprotected list is 25 year old defenseman Nate Schmidt. So that's that bit of news that uh, we need to cover there. Uh, also remember the US Open getting going this morning. Uh, some some top fifty uh, players that basically if you're if you're under par, you're not teeing off for another at least fifteen minutes. Uh, you get into some of the guys who might sneak in a contention with some help around twelve thirty, but really one and then into 2 o'clock is when the leaders will tee off. Uh, 254 is when the final group tees off. Brian Harmon and Justin Thomas, Brooks Kepka and Tommy Fleetwood at 243, Ricky Fowler and Siwoom Kim at 232. Uh, the leaderboards here for the U.S. Open on 106.7. The fan are driven by BMW of Fairfax. Score a one-over through 72 of your own now at BMW of Fairfax. That's 1% financing for up to 72 months now on select BMWs. Details at bmwoffairfax.com. Again, I'm Craig Hoffman. It's a Hoffman Show here on The Fan. And Twitter's an interesting place right now uh, with all of the news going on, uh, both in and out of sports. But um, there was a tweet earlier this week from lauren duca lauren is a political columnist for uh teen vogue who made massive headlines when she wrote a well first she wrote a piece that that went viral um donald trump is gaslighting america and you can go back and read that and if you're so inclined and think what you think of the piece and then she had an appearance on tucker tucker carlson's show on fox news in which he was sexist uh and uh, made some comments that upset a lot of people. Again, I'm not here to get into the politics, just to kind of explain the background of who Lauren Duca is. Um, I follow her on Twitter as I follow many political people on Twitter because I'm interested and I think being informed is, is important. Again, that's more background, not anything else. But she tweeted this week, um, our president is the intellectual equivalent of a lunch table full of football players. Nice. And no matter what you think of the president, which again, I'm not here to comment on because it's not this show, I think her point, obviously her point was that our president's really stupid and the comparison that she goes to is a table full of football players. And that, that pisses me off. And that's what I want to talk about because there is long in this country, been this stereotype of the dumb jock athlete. And look, we all were in high school at one point, or maybe you still are unless you're younger and then uh, maybe, maybe you're, you're a seventh grader listening and you're going to be in high school soon. But you are even you, seventh grader, little Jimmy, Tommy, Stan, is aware of the dumb jock stereotype. And in a way, I think, we play into that as athletes and people in the sports world. There's an anti-intellectualism. It's not cool to be smart. You're a nerd. We we have fun with the guys that are kind of smart in the nerdy way, the Andrew Lux of the world. Kirk Cousins absolutely is like this. Or he's, he's a little bit of a nerd. And, like, I'll do it. I, I'm guilty of it, too. Um, I'm guilty of it at my own expense, where... I'll make fun of myself for making intellectual commentary. And I think it's, it's disappointing at best because we're discouraging intelligence and that's something that we shouldn't discourage in youth, in adults, in discourse of any kind in life. Like what's, what's wrong with being smart? And so when we have this and reinforce this idea that athletes are dumb jocks, It bothers me. And it bothers me because I have now been in professional locker rooms and even college locker rooms for almost a decade. And some of the smartest people I've ever met are athletes. It's just how they apply their intelligence and how it comes off. We at times can associate intelligence with being well-spoken. I mean, look. I, I'm i not the best at doing math on my feet, but I, I speak well, so you'd probably be like, oh, he's he's smart. Where you could have some math genius who just doesn't like to talk a lot. And it's like, oh, he, he's kind of quiet. I don't know how bright he is. Or just someone who's not articulate, which is often code language, speaks in Ebonics, speaks in... Or maybe even is uh, from a different country. We, we associate people who can't speak English well with not being intelligent when it might just not be their first language. Like, oh, he's not as smart. He doesn't, doesn't speak English great. Or you could have a guy who speaks English great uh, and has come over from a different country and is actually a moron. Like, it's all true. The scope is all true. To try to narrow it down um, either amongst athletes or non-athletes is crazy. But, for instance, the podcast that I talked about a lot last week on the show that, that we did with Will Compton, go listen to that podcast and tell me Will Compton, a country boy from Bonterre, Missouri, isn't really smart. The way he approaches the world, the way he approaches his job, uh, the way he thinks about things, that is an intellectual human being. He's also a middle linebacker in the NFL. That the amount of information that even big hog molly offensive linemen process on every single play... Those are cerebral guys. And so what I responded to this tweet with was this. Some of the smartest athletes I've met are football players. This thought that all jocks are anti-intellectual has got to stop. It's absurd. Something I've always tried to do in this job uh, is humanize the athletes we all watch. And as I said, uh, just said, I tweeted, go listen to the pod we just did with Compton and tell me he's stupid. Are all athletes brilliant? No, not even close, But neither are all brain surgeons, and then I included a gif of Ben Carson, who's had his moments of say what Uh, when he was campaigning for president and since. Again, it's how you apply your intellectualism. Ben Carson is one of the best brain surgeons ever when it comes to other areas of life. He doesn't seem to be as intelligent. When it comes to talking about sports, I'm all right. When it comes to finances, I'm not. When it comes to talking about finances, you'd hope your financial advisor's great, but he's probably not great at talking about health and fitness or some other topic that is outside of his area of specialty. How many super smart scientists can't hold a regular conversation because they lack the people skills? The point is, everybody, now I sound like a poster, but everybody's unique. Everyone has their thing. And, It bothers me that as I'm around these athletes who are all really, really smart and very, very thoughtful, that there is a continuing stereotype uh, of being not smart and that that is cool because I think it sends a bad message and I think that we're not giving these guys enough credit. Gary Parish, he's really smart. He's next on The Fan. Father's Day to all of you listening. I'm Craig Hoffman here on the Fan. 30 more minutes for Nats Insider. Joining me now is Gary Parish of CBS Sports. GP, good Sunday morning to you, sir. How are you? Everything's good. You okay? I'm doing well, man. I'm doing well. Excited to talk to you. Uh, We got a a bunch going on. There's a million ways. Uh, We could probably spend this entire segment talking about the draft, the entire segment talking about Louisville and the repercussions. We'll, We'll try to split it as evenly as we can between two. Let's start with Louisville, though, in the NCAA and their continued, uh, I don't know, confusion at, at, at or all of our confusion at their rulings and their punishments. What did you make of what they did to Louisville when you look at it in the greater context of what happened to, say, a Syracuse and a lot of the other programs that have been punished recently for various things?
1: Well, it's interesting because I can understand Louisville's frustration in the sense that what they tried to turn this into was strictly an extra benefits case. You know, Hey, let's gloss over the details, not worry about the fact that, yeah, it was a prostitute, a stripper, and that sounds really bad, but let's just talk about what actually happened here. We had student athletes and prospects accept extra benefits. True. We agree. Uh, but the cost is minimal. It's a $75 dance. It's a hundred dollars. You know what? (laughs) And though we understand it's bad, um, it's not that different than somebody you know getting a, a free shirt to, uh, from campus when they 're not supposed to, or a free meal from a coach when they 're not supposed to. this isn't that big of a deal as it you know if you if you view it through the lens strictly of an extra benefits case. Um, what the incident essentially did was say, We hear you, but get out of here. This <laughs> is really, really bad. This is a university employee hired by Rick Patino providing strippers and prostitutes for student athletes and in some cases prospects, including prospects who were in some cases just 16 years old. This is the worst of the worst. You will be punished heavily for it. So um, I think Louisville did about as good a job as it could do trying to frame this a certain way, but ultimately the NCAA just said, no, we're going to invoke common sense. You can't be providing prostitutes to kids. Uh, You're going to pay a big price for this.
0: And that makes sense to me. It is the rare thing in the NCAA it does that makes sense. However, if you're going to do that, how does Patino get five games when Jim Beheim and Larry Brown got nine for much less uh, salacious and, uh, I believe, harmful infractions? I mean, look, I'm, I'm a lot more well-versed on the Syracuse case because that's my alma mater, and it, everything that happened happened while I was there. Um, but... When you talk about uh, a student cheating on a paper versus providing prostitutes to 16-year-olds, like the punishment doesn't seem to add up.
1: Yeah, I don't understand why Rick only gets five and then Jim gets nine and Larry got nine. Like you know, The NCAA didn't do a good job of explaining that, and there's no obvious explanation for it, except for perhaps uh, they genuinely believe, and I think most people in basketball circles genuinely believe, that Rick Pitino had nothing to do with this. And I don't mean that Rick wasn't the one providing the money, meeting with the prostitute, meeting with the escort, so on and so on. I mean, he didn't know. Like, I, I, I've, I've run into some people who say, come on, how naive are you? Um, of course he knew. It's impossible to believe this could be going on on his campus with his players and prospects and him not know. And, and I hear you. I guess I would just counter with uh, the only thing harder to believe than that Rick Pitino didn't know is to believe that Rick Pitino did know and didn't put a stop to this. Because think of it in these terms. Yeah, it was like 11 or 12 parties, and that sounds like a lot, right? Except for when you remember, it's over a four-year span. So what are we talking about here? Uh, Probably a party in the middle of the night on campus about once every three or four months uh you know i could probably have a party at my house once every three or four months without my family finding out about it right and they live here so in that respect it's not it's not that hard to understand and then and then there's this just you can say whatever you want to about rick patino but i've talked to Guys in the profession who are friendly with Rick, who aren't friendly with Rick, who do like Rick, who don't like Rick, who have a relationship with Rick, who don't have a relationship with Rick. People from all sorts of of, uh, angles. And almost none of them think that he really did know. And the reason is because even if you thought you needed to cheat to recruit, even if you thought the way to cheat was to provide prostitutes and, and strippers for prospects, you'd never bring that on campus, especially into a dorm that's got your Uh, late brother-in-law's name on it. You would say, hey, listen, I don't need to know about this, but uh, unsolicited advice, if this is the way it's going down, take it off campus. Take it to the downtown Marriott. Take it to a house five miles east. You're not bringing... These women on campus with security cameras into a building where normal students also live, meaning they have no invested interest in the men's basketball program. This is insane. Get it off of campus. The fact that this went on consistently in that dorm that's on campus with those security cameras suggests to me and most people Rick genuinely didn't know that this was going on because it defies logic to think he did and continued to let it go on. And so, from the NCAA's perspective, i think they just they just you know understood like this is bad we have to punish him because of a failure to monitor but he wasn't involved he didn't know we'll hit him a little bit but not as hard as we otherwise might
0: that makes sense the only thing that would then make sense or not make sense is why they were so harsh on jim and larry but that's a different conversation for a different day sure. gary Parrish, cbs sports it is with me craig hoffman here on the fan you can read more on Gary's thoughts on this and how it affects Hugh Freeze and some of the football side. And then, obviously, there'll be a trickle down in North Carolina, eventually, we think, too, at CBSSports.com. All right, Gary, in the, the final few minutes we have here, let's talk about the NBA draft. You're obviously intime, intimately familiar with, with the players, and now we have this trade at the top of the draft. The thought is that Boston is doing this to take Josh Jackson. Would that make any sense to you?
1: It does if you love Josh Jackson. You know, I would not have done this trade if I were Boston. But the reason I wouldn't have done this trade if I were Boston is because I genuinely believe Markel Fultz is the best prospect available, a future All Star. And I don't pass on that guy. Like, if I'm picking first, I'm not passing on the guy that I think is clear cut the best prospect in this draft. Not as clear cut as it was for LeBron in 2003 or Anthony Davis in 2012, but I still think Markel Fultz is the guy who should be picked first. And, by the way, he is going to be picked first, but it's going to be by Philadelphia as opposed to Boston. So if I'm Boston, from my perspective, I don't do it. But it seems pretty clear at this point, Danny Ainge doesn't feel like Markel Fultz is, you know, a clear-cut number one prospect in this draft. Or, at the very least, he feels like there are multiple other players who are in the same class or the same caliber as Markel Fultz. And so they're comfortable moving back three spots or moving back two spots rather and picking up a future first-round pick. I'm, you know, uh, based on what I've been told, their, their backcourt jam also played a role in this. Like maybe they don't need to take a primary ball handler, but I think that's insane. You know, once upon a time, famously, Portland didn't think it needed a shooting guard because it already had Clyde Drexler. That's how you end up passing on Michael Jordan. So I've never thought, right. if you're picking at the top of the draft, you concern yourself with your roster at all. You take the best guy who's got the best opportunity to be a star. In my mind, that is Markel Fultz, but Danny Ainge seems to not think that way, and so they're comfortable getting Josh Jackson or Jason Tatum at three and picking up a future first-round pick as well.
0: Yeah, as I've said throughout the morning, I think Tatum makes more sense for them, but- we'll see uh moving forward all right real quick um the back end of the second round um where guys that you've seen play now for three four years are are probably going to go the wizards uh obviously are going to be picking there and and would like to have someone that contribute immediate can contribute immediately i would think to in a backup role in their their backcourt maybe even uh someone in in the front court is there a player that you just really really like that you think is going to go late that's going to be an absolute steal for someone.
1: Uh, You you know, you're always, the odds are stacked against you picking down there. I mean, sometimes it does work out, but usually it doesn't. But I will say, uh, look last year, uh, Yoki Farrell went undrafted, ended up in the NBA as a starting point guard. Fred Van Vliet went undrafted, ended up making the roster for a playoff team, the Raptors, in the Eastern Conference. Ron Baker went undrafted, ended up starting for the Knicks. Uh, Troy Williams went undrafted, ended up playing in the NBA playoffs. And so, Uh, they're out there. You will find an NBA player, you know, uh, late in the second round, and even a guy who is not picked at all. I guess the guys I would look at, the ones who prove to be awesome college players because – what did I just explore? You know, the guys I just listed, Fred Van Vliet, not an elite level athlete, doesn't have great size for his position. I don't know if he can play in the NBA. We're not going to draft him. Oh, wow, he's in the NBA. Uh, that seems crazy. I should have remembered he was awesome in college. Same thing for Ron Baker. Same thing with Yogi Ferrell. They all had reasons they didn't get drafted. They all still figured it out. And we, in hindsight, we should have probably assumed they would because they were consistently awesome college players. I take a look at guys like Frank Mason, a guy like uh, Dylan Brooks, a guy like Josh Hart. You know, they are all projected second round picks, and they all have reasons where you might not select them in the first round or even early in the second round. Dylan Brooks probably has to be able to guard perimeter players in the NBA. He basically guarded tower forwards in college. Frank Mason's a little bitty. Uh, Josh Hart, you know, just is really good in a lot of areas, not great at any one thing, but they were all consistently great college players. And I think that all those guys you'll look up, whether it's next year or in two years, and they will be on NBA rosters. And if you can get somebody in the second round who actually sticks on your NBA roster, you've done a good job with that
0: pick. Absolutely. I agree with all of you all of those guys. I agree with you on all those guys. Gary Parish, you can follow him on Twitter at Gary Parrish CBS. Read him at CBS GP, always good to catch up. We'll do it again later this summer. Be well, my friend.
1: My pleasure. Take care, buddy. I see you. Bye.
0: That is Gary Parrish of CBS Sports coming up next. We'll wrap up the show. We're going to go rapid fire through the top five prospects in the NBA draft. I've got Scouting reports on them all. We'll get you set for Thursday night here on the fan. I have six minutes and five prospects. That's like a minute ten each on every prospect. Actually, we'll do a minute on each of the top five prospects in the NBA draft, starting right now. Markel Fultz, incredibly in-control player. He's on balance at all times, which helps him as a shooter. He sees the entire floor. And because he's 6'5", with a 6'10", wingspan, he is going to be a pain in the butt defensively if his technique doesn't stink. He's going to, he, like, He's got the patience to stay down because he doesn't need to jump, which will help him stay out of foul trouble, stay on the floor. That's good. However, the negatives of Markel Fultz, the Yamatha product, that is going to be taken number one overall by the Philadelphia 76ers after this trade with Boston, uh, is that that always in control can lead to him being a little too casual. He never presses, but sometimes he loses urgency. He's not technically disciplined as a defender, but that's because he's 19 years old. I'm fine with that. One really odd thing I noticed, he has a lot of passes deflected at the point of attack. He's got to be less predictable, less lazy. Um, And I wonder the sharpness of his practice, how good that is, because he's not working with a skills coach at all. So I wonder as he gets into a Brett Brown system where they're really on top of him, if his game takes another leap. All right, next one, Lonzo Ball, second best prospect in this draft. His range is fantastic, even though his shot is really ugly. He's an explosive athlete vertically and horizontally, meaning he can burst, but he can also get off the floor. He will dunk on you at 6'6". Six, six. Uh, he sees the full floor in both the half court and the full court, uh, and his his passing ability is is really next level. It is super elite. He has great hips defensively. He can turn. He's a quick-twitch athlete. Uh... The negatives for Lonzo Ball are this. He's great at the rim. He's a good three-point shooter. He took eight two-point jumpers all year. Eight. He has zero middle game. He's going to have to develop that at the NBA level. He's got a really high turnover rate in pick and roll as a pick and roll point guard in the league, which is what he will be. Uh, That's got to get better, and he needs to get a lot stronger. He's only 190 pounds at 6'6". Josh Jackson, forward out of Kansas, 6'8". He is a super quick twitch athlete. Can do a little bit of everything on both ends. He plays really, really hard, and he's super competitive. And so if he plays for Brad Stevens, he will do the things that are required to stay on the floor. He will play really hard. In many ways, he reminds me of Jalen Brown which is interesting because the Celtics already have Jalen Brown and it is thought that that is where they are going with this pick. Uh, However, in the league now where you want to switch everything and have a lot of interchangeable parts... Maybe this makes a lot of sense. I hate the mechanics on his jumper, but they're not far off. He needs to work with a coach on that. If he gets a good shooting coach, I think he can become a knockdown shooter. He's already 20 years old, too. He's not a 19 year old kid. He's a little bit old for his class, and he needs to put on weight. So he's putting on, you know, he's already a year closer to his adult man body, uh, and that's a little bit of a concern. Jason Tatum. Joe Johnson is the name that keeps coming back to me when I watch Jason Tatum. He just looks bigger than everyone else on the floor, even though he's 6'8". Um, where Joe Johnson, you're like, man, he's a big wing. Jason Tatum's the same way, but he's got some Grant Hill to his game too, um, and he's got a little Giannis Kumbo in him. Giannis is obviously a lot bigger and longer, but Tatum's really long, and he's super crafty in getting to the rim using his length. Where he'll his, he has like go-go gadget arms that'll just extend out and be able to get to the rim and scoop in a layup. He'll also dunk on you. What makes Tatum really special offensively is his post game. At six eight, he will destroy. smaller wings you try to guard him with a two guard or you get him in a switch on a point guard he was 99th percentile in all of college basketball from as a post-up scorer he's got everything down there now he needs to put on a little bit of range uh he needs to become or a little bit of weight needs to become more consistent as a three-point shooter but i love jason tatum and it will not surprise me if he is the best prospect in this draft when all is said and done then, the last of the five prospects I'm going to break down for you in this blitz is De'Aaron Fox, point guard out of Kentucky. He is John Wall light athletically. He is every bit a speedster, speed demon who knows how to use uh, his speed in the open floor. He can run with or without the ball, and he is a super bouncy leaver, leaper who will dunk on you. He accelerates really well. He has great separation with his first step, and he's fast enough to get all the way, all the way to the rim. He's also got a nifty pull-up game and a good floater game He's great technically as a defender and doesn't rely on the fact that he's a long athlete. He actually stays in front of guys. And then when he does gamble, has the athletic ability to recover. Got all that? All right, here's the negative. The difference between him and John Wall is John's vision is as good as anyone you'll ever see. Fox isn't that as a passer. He's also not as big and bulky as Wall is. That is the biggest difference between the two players. That's why John Wall is a consensus number one overall pick. And uh, is going to be a perennial all-star in the league. And why De'Aaron Fox might achieve all-star level, but is not that guy as a prospect. His jumper has a good foundation, but it doesn't have good results. I actually think it's similar to John's mechanically, although he's a lefty. Um, We'll see. As he gets more coaching, if De'Aaron Fox can develop the steady jumper, it would not surprise me. But right now, he is zero threat as a catch-and-shoot guy. And he's the one thing that scares me about Fox is he's not polished at all on the pick-and-roll, which is something that Wall's always been good at has become great at. I'm curious to see with more coaching if he can develop into a good pick-and-roll player. Uh, there's a lot of other good players in this draft, too. Malik Monk, I think, is really, really good. Uh, I think Jonathan Isaac, the, the, the analytics say he could be the best player in this draft. Um, We'll see. I mean, guys like Zach Collins out of Gonzaga, really good players that are going to go in the back half of the top 10 late lottery that could turn out to be studs. Definitely starters in the league. Thanks for checking out the best of. That'll do for this week's show. Again, if you want live shows next weekend, have two of them afternoon Saturday. I think I'm starting at noon. uh, And then the 9 to noon Sunday morning show on schedule for next week. Train with the Best Podcast will record this week. Uh, Still the latest edition as of right now is the chat with Will Compton. Why? Because Chris was in Poland, and we can't record while Chris is in Poland. So he's back uh, a little bit later this afternoon. We'll record a fresh new episode this week. Maybe even two. Maybe we'll make up for it. Double on the Train with the Best Podcast. Make sure you subscribe to that. Subscribe to this. Appreciate you listening. Have a great week, everybody.